Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific series. As in Voice of Fintech podcast so far, here you will hear inspirational stories of entrepreneurs, corporate innovators, investors, ecosystem hub leaders from or close to the world of fintech. Asia Pacific series will be hosted by amazing hosts based in the region, speaking to the leaders from Asia Pacific. Here is another one hosted by Angela. Hi, I'm Angela, co-founder and CEO of Natarum, and today's host of the Voice of Fintech Asia Pacific. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting with Oyi, the Chief Commercial Officer at iStox. iStox is the world's first integrated platform for digital securities. It uses its proprietary technology to directly connect buyers and sellers, providing previously out-of-reach investment opportunity, including private equity, hedge funds, and private debt. Oyi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Angela. Really happy to be with you on the show. So break it down for those of us who aren't financial wizards. How does iStocks work? We see iStocks as a platform for exchange and for distribution of private market products. And what do I mean by private market products? This actually includes a number of very interesting investment ideas that have hedge funds, private equity funds, potentially even structured credit, and a number of uh, these investment ideas that are uh, what we call not available to retail. So at the moment, they are not listed on a public stock exchange, and they are mostly available to institutional um, investors, as well as uh, large family offices. Okay, so what you're really talking about here is the secondary market. So what are some of the barriers that have stopped people participating in the secondary market up until now? So, um, Angela, I think if we stop, step back a little bit, a lot of these products, for example, hedge funds or, for example, private equity funds or even, even stretching the example of unicorns, for example, they have been around for a while now, but the space has been growing for a number of years. And most of the investors who have invested sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, large asset managers, and these products are predominantly slightly higher risk uh, because they're in a private market. They could be growth companies who have not shown earnings yet. It could be hedge funds where there's a lot of volatility uh, in the fund itself. And therefore, the fund managers have been very cautious about offering this to retail investors. They have, however, seen the benefit of uh, working with ISOX because what ISOX does, it, it, it helps them with a layer of technology to break these investments down to smaller sizes. So, for example, a hedge fund traditionally would look at investors uh, investing a minimum of a million dollars. Our technology can help the, them to break those investment sizes down to as low as 10,000, 20,000, and therefore expanding the reach of investors that this hedge fund or even private equity funds can access. And, and this has not traditionally been available. Now, the second thing we've done besides breaking up the investment sizes to smaller sizes is to allow a secondary market exchange. Now, previously, um, the technology just was not available for private market products because private market products are quite uh, bespoke in nature. And for example, funds have different investment uh, terms. Hedge funds have different types of hedge funds. And really, we create the platform uh, that makes it 
uh, easier because of technology to have these different structures of products to be able to trade in a secondary format. Okay, fantastic. So when you talk about your people that come on to use the platform, your in- the investors, how do you qualify the investors? And how do you find them? We follow the Singapore Monetary Authority of Singapore, also called the MAS. Their rule on accredited investors are as follows. Either you have net income of 300000 or you have net financial assets of $1 million Singapore dollars, or you have a net worth of $2 million Singapore dollars. We do quite a lot of checking at the back end as to the individual investors or even the relative corporate investors and family offices. They meet the minimum for this accreditation. Now, how do we find them? We started off very modestly with friends and family. This was about early last year. But since then, we've grown in leaps and bounds because I think, first of all, we're one of the few platforms that offer such interesting uh, products. But also we have a very strong uh, marketing approach and we really take the approach that we're taking these investments and we are purposing, repurposing it for the high net worth uh, investor. So our marketing team has been uh, very good. We work with a lot of digital sort of formats. We have a lot of outreach, uh, clearly uh, marketing and the PR side. And this has actually helped us to grow by leaps and bounds over the last year or so. Fantastic. So I guess that's the buy side. On the sell side, obviously having great quality investors is important, but having great quality product that you're selling on the platform as well is really important. So I think you refer to these as issuances. How do you source your issuances? We we work with uh, a number of uh, sources here. First of all, the team here has um, quite a lot of connectivity with uh, whether it's fund managers or corporates themselves. And we have partners like asset management partners who who for example, last year worked with a uh, top global macro fund and helped us repackage that into a feeder fund and worked with us to issue that on our platform. I think going forward, the more that we do in the quality issuers that we work with, I think that by itself is driving quite a lot of interest level within at least the Singapore community of fund managers. But we're also starting to see fund managers uh, and corporates outside of Singapore, for example, Australia, Europe. We get a lot of reverse inquiries now just because actually uh, both on a PR and a digital scale were actually quite visible. So that's been very exciting for us. So are you, when you're looking to onboard issuances, is there a particular vetting criteria or selection criteria you use to make sure your investors are seeing the best quality issuances possible? Yes, Angela, we take all these into consideration. We take a number of things into consideration when we're looking at issuers. And at the moment, we are fully focused on the funds piece uh, as well as the bonds piece. Now, on the fund side, there are a few things at a high level we take off. One is the fund manager, how long the fund manager has been in operation, what is the track record of the fund manager, how many funds has he raised, how successful are these funds, which jurisdiction he or she is registered or licensed in, etc. So there is a, a number of areas that we look at. The second area we look at is what are they good at or specialized in? What is the underlying funds investment? Does that have a natural appeal to our current investor base? So that is the second part that we look at. The third part we look at 
is more the legal structure of the fund, whether or not we can tokenize that and issue that on our platform. The governance of the fund, for example, is also something that we look at investment committees, how independent they are. At the final stage, we do have an independent listing committee that reviews the work that we've done, both on the commercial and the legal reviews. And they have a final sign-off, so to speak, before we are allowing a fund or a bond to be issued on our platform. Quite a quite an intensive amount of review and, and diligence before before this goes out. Absolutely, quite a rigorous process. Yeah. So you, you mentioned before about the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the MAS Sandbox um, that you were part of. Talk us a little bit about through that experience, because I think that's becoming a, a sort of a more prominent part of the regulatory landscape of a lot of different jurisdictions, but I think Singapore's leading the way in that aspect. Yes, I think MAS has been amazingly supportive of this whole uh, process. And I think what we see is that MAS, first of all, has been very progressive in the way they think about digitization uh, of securities. And we look across uh, the world and, and the reason why we've been so fortunate to call ourselves the first in, in a number of things, first this, first that, is really because MAS came out very early on and aligned the regulations around digitization. And some of the countries obviously have on power Singapore slightly behind, but the alignment or the clarity of what does digitization of security mean in securities regulation is very important. So first of all, I think MAS got that um, right. And the second thing that MAS is absolutely, I think, world-class about is opening up the sandbox. And what does that do for startups like ourselves is really the ability to uh, go in there with a concept. And blockchain, as you can imagine, it's still a very new concept across the financial services and certainly in capital markets. And everybody recognizes the potential that blockchain could bring. But there are obviously a few issues or clarifications that the regulators would want around using blockchain for a variety of use cases, in our case, capital markets. But kudos to the, the MAS team. They have a very open mind. And when we went in with our concept, there are a few things we had to cover within the sandbox, right? Obviously, one is whether the tech works or not, which obviously it does. The second is around the security of uh, our technology. And the third is how do we structure our governance uh, and our ongoing operations to, to ensure all of these works and things like that. I think I would say that we were very fortunate. We, we spent uh, a lot of time in preparation. I would say that we were very fortunate to have investors uh, like SGX, who, who helped us a lot in the early days to frame our thinking around the, not specifically the tech because uh, blockchain is obviously very new, but how do we think about exchange technology? How do we think about the rules governing the exchange? And that, I think, helped us a lot in the MAS uh, sandbox. Brilliant. Okay, so I think the concept of blockchain is obviously, it's not a new one, but it's certainly one that's gathering momentum year after year. So what kind of advice would you have to other startups thinking about entering something like the MAS sandbox? I would say what the sandbox is, it's a place where there is a lot of scrutiny, right? Because MAS 
is there to look at what this technology, what a startup brings in terms of, of technology, but also around it, wrapped around it, the governance, the process, the operations. And so for a startup to go into a sandbox, I think the biggest advice would be as ready as you can. Put a lot of effort into the prep because what you don't want to happen is go into the sandbox and then holes either start appearing or the tech is not performing. And once I think there is a little bit of uncertainty or discomfort, then I think it would take a lot of energy to, to solve it and get out of that. So preparation is very important. The second thing is I would say, key, and MAS is very open to it, but the dialogue with MAS needs to be very frequent and very tight because the, as a startup, I think one has to understand what might be some of the pain points with MAS and you possibly could get blindsided by either a shift in thinking or maybe MAS has a particular issue that the company may not be as sensitive to. So uh, that dialogue needs to be very close and very tight. Much appreciated for that advice, I think. So I guess the road for iStocks up to this point as well, you were founded in 2017 and obviously the tech team spent quite a lot of time building the tech after that because obviously there's very little room for error in, in what you do. But I guess since then, you, you graduated into full commercial operation during a pandemic, really. Tell us a bit about this. And if we were fly on the wall during this time, what are some of the conversations we would have heard? Yeah, I think this is, I joined Elite uh, 2020. So right just before we got the license and right into the pandemic. And obviously no one was expecting that. And I think on when we were going through that, a lot of it was just the reaction around working from home. And I don't know if you can imagine it, but as a startup, that is very difficult, especially at the front line when you have just got your license, you're launching. What you want to be doing is sitting with your team. And what you want to be doing is ensuring the product team and the tech team and the marketing team are all aligned and in sync. And, and that really can only happen real time. And I think the first few months, we were trying to get our act together on Zoom, which, of course, took some time to really get into the flow of things. The second thing that happened, which was difficult for us, was we had planned a whole series of events to launch and market iStocks in a live setting. And we felt that was important because at the end of the day, the initial face-to-face -face contact and the initial pitch is very important. And so we lost a lot of that ability in the first few months of the pandemic. What we then had to do was pick up very quickly the ability to use webinars, the ability to use Zoom very efficiently, and to really pick up where we, where we could not when obviously the, the first lockdown just started. And I think we learned along the way very quickly how to do that. But I think worked in our favor was also the pandemic gave us a little bit of time and space. And what happened was we took on issuers, we, we launched a deal, we learned from our lessons, uh, we had to tweak things here and there, the operational level or the fundraising level. And I think we came out of it, I think, more experienced with a lot of scars. I think we took the time to think about our messaging and we've improved that significantly over the last uh, 12 months. And the digital format seems to have really, I think, been a feature of the pandemic, how digital businesses have survived. And I think we have 
proven that we can survive through the pandemic, just really being clever and fast and nimble and using more technology, thinking about digital presences, how do we work with you know other digital platforms, and et cetera, et cetera. Really interesting. So I think for, from your perspective, it's definitely about just making sure that you make those changes that are required to keep the team operating at kind of peak performance. Yes. But I think also you mentioned as well, taking a step back sometimes and slowing down kind of one gear actually helped you go faster in the end. And I think maybe coming from corporate, maybe this is a lesson you learned there. I think um, you had a quite a strong banking background in, at UBS, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup. And with a resume like that, the world really is your oyster. So what was it that drew you specifically to iStocks? Wow, I could go on for a while about that. <laughs> Bit um, of a loaded question, I'm sorry. Having spent 20 years plus in the capital markets, which really ages me, the evolution of capital markets has been quite interesting, right? If I look back 20 years ago, what really was the core of the success of Singapore and and, and I rode off the back of that success was actually uh, the real estate space. If you think about REITs uh, 20 years ago, the changes in laws allowing REITs to be listed on exchanges actually was the beginning of democratizing real estate investment. If you think about it, an individual could not own a big office building. But with REITs, actually, they can now own a unit of a large office building. And so I was very fortunate. I worked with many very clever bankers around how to think about REITs, how to structure them, how to do IPOs, what works, what doesn't work, quality of issuers, quality of assets, etc., etc. So this was 20-something years ago. And fast forward today, in the last five to 10 years, there is uh, also another sort of evolution of the capital markets, and that is the shift from the public markets uh, to the private markets. And we saw that uh, we talk about sovereign wealth funds and institutional capital. The allocation to alternative assets of private markets was as low as sort of 10% about five to eight years ago. Today, it's about 20%. So increasingly, we saw the move towards private markets, private funds, uh, real estate you know, strategies, hedge funds, etc., And at UBS, I was quite fortunate to see that uh, shift because UBS is a very large private bank and a number of the private market issuers were coming to UBS saying, can we work with the UBS distribution? So I, I saw that as a growing part of the business. The second thing that I also saw was Singapore as a hub needs to evolve and it needs to um, look at different ways of expanding and deepening the capital markets. Because there's a big REIT market at the moment and clearly a lot of desire for Singapore to see different types of companies, growth companies, tech companies come on shore and list and be present in in Singapore. And so I saw iStocks as a core part of that. I see iStocks, first of all, as the ability to help uh, grow an ecosystem at the private company level, at a private equity level, building potentially unicorns and shaping the way we think and Singaporeans think about investing in growth companies. And that is at the heart of it, the stepping stone into a bigger, larger listed ecosystem through the SGX. And so our, partner with, our partnership with SGX is very important. Uh, I see that as a just in in some ways a very nationalist nationalistic approach, but I certainly think ISOX is the one to help Singapore build that infrastructure for private markets. 
Interesting. Thank you very much. And the, the parallels between the real estate market and what you're doing now are really interesting, I think. Yeah. So from your perspective, you are very much in this role, partly because you're very mission driven and you really want to democratize access to these investment opportunities. And I'm guessing the rest of the team at iStocks has a very similar vision to you. How does the team think about your mission internally and, and what is it you're hoping to bring to the Singapore community, but also the global community in the next five or 10 or more years? Yep. So I think the company as a whole was set up with that single a mission, right? Democratizing private markets for investors. And when a private markets for alternative assets is a space where the returns, the, the, the risk returns are higher. So the higher returns, but the higher risk, but it also is a diversification to any investor's portfolio. And so if you see what's happening in the space, in the public space, if you look at last year in March, when there was a huge market correction, everything was basically correlated, right? Everything went down 30% almost at the same time. If you look back and you, if you had some private market allocation in your uh, portfolio, I think that would balance out some of the volatility, which is an interesting observation. And, but also, of course, yeah. And also, even as a banker, when you used to see products and you used to distribute them into the private bank, I would always ask, why can't I get some of that? And I think that with REITs, again, coming back to the REIT analogy, the amount of wealth that's created for investors at the retail level, because of their ability to buy safer, yielding, asset-backed products, has been massive. You think about the amount of uh, capital that's gone into that and the amount of capital gains and returns that have come from that space. I think we see that analogy here today with the private markets product which is about wealth creation. And wealth creation and, and the combination of that with our technology to allow that to bring that down to investors from, let's say, even the between the 2 to 20 million high net worth space is extremely underserved at the moment, partly because the tech doesn't exist to serve them. And I'll give a very simple example. A hedge fund, like I said, if you, your minimum is 1 million, but for an average investor who wants to add some risk and volatility in his portfolio, he could take on 50,000 of a hedge fund. And that adds to you know his portfolio diversification, adds a little bit of return, possibly. Of course, it adds a bit more risk, but now it's manageable because it's a, it's a small percentage of his portfolio. And I think the founders see that. Danny, who's invested for decades now, sees that. Darius, who was with GIC and worked at the portfolio uh, strategy level, sees that. And I certainly, coming from both an investment bank and within a very large and powerful private bank, see that. And the company, when it was built, was all about how do we uh, create a platform that is efficient and it, it, everybody gets the opportunity to basically just sign in, look at what's on, the, the, on our product list, come and invest either in a primary uh, offering or maybe come and invest in, in the secondary trading of, it could be a fund, it could be a bond. At some point, it could be a, some stake in the unicorn shares. I'm sure that will get everyone very excited. Well, speaking of unicorns, you have just raised your Series A as well, and it's quite a large series. A very big congratulations to the team Thank you. over there for that. Uh, and you have a, a, an incredible list of investors who've joined the round as well. So talk us through a little bit about of the fundraising round and you know where to from here. What will you do with the capital you've raised? The investors that have come in, actually, I've observed some interesting 
reactions from them. First of all, SGX has been very supportive and they came in very early in the seed round. They provided a lot of support, but they also knew that we were different uh, because we were private markets and because we appealed to, we're focusing on accredited investors, whereas they are focused on retail investors. So I think they see the complementarity in our businesses. Post that, we saw financial institutions, for example, Patra in Thailand, Tokai in Japan, Hanwha in Korea, and they came quite early on as part of the early A. What they wanted to do was understand how would blockchain and capital markets in combination might either disrupt their business or complement the business. And that was very interesting to me because usually in these early rounds, it's either friends and family or VCs. But here we had financial institutions who were very serious and did quite a lot of due diligence with us. And in Japan, as the blockchain movement is very strong. And one of the things that everyone is now talking about is digitization of capital markets, which is, and digitization of private capital markets is already what we're doing. And so what we saw was the Japan group that came in all came in on that basis. And we very gratefully had uh, DBJ, JIC, MIC, so a number of uh, sovereign related funds, as well as VCs in Japan as well as banks. So we had another bank come in as well alongside uh, Tokai. This is part of uh, Tokai's drive to see where we can partner in Japan, whether we do it here in Singapore first, test the concept, bring it back to Japan, or even launch a a separate platform in Japan that's uh, up for discussion. So it depends on how the regulators are moving and how quickly we are moving. So that's where I... And the focus of that A round was really about where do we see synergies with these financial institutions? And so it was less about valuation or economics or, or things like that, but it was really more about how do we partner uh, each and one of these to expand into the Asia market. So it was a really strategic approach from your behalf. How did you source the investors in the first place? Well, from I think they came from everywhere. They came from relationships uh, with our founder, Danny. They came from, yeah, mostly Danny and his relationships a- across the financial institutions and some of his uh, partners in the asset management space. SGX and, and Heliconia from the Singapore side, obviously very willing to back uh, Singapore growth companies. Fantastic. Well, I've really appreciated uh, talking to you today and it's been fascinating to hear the journey with iStocks. Uh, A big thank you, Oyi and the team from iStock for arranging the little chat today. And we look forward to joining you all next time. Thank you. Thank you, Angela. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.